Hey everyone, it's Clarissa here from the Thriving Through Menopause podcast. You know, as I talk to women around the world, I know that more than ever, we're looking for holistic ways to manage our menopause and to feel empowered that we're in control of our own health and healing during this vital life transition. I sit down each week with amazing guests to talk about ideas, strategies, approaches, and opportunities to help us thrive through menopause. Episodes drop every Tuesday, so I hope that you'll join us. And I have a little request for you, that if you find value from the stories, lessons, and wisdom that we share, I'd like you to support this podcast. One way you can do that is to hop on to wherever you listen to podcasts and like and subscribe and share it so that others can hear the messages too. You might want to buy me a coffee to help me keep this podcast up and running. And I'd love you to subscribe to my newsletter, Heart of Menopause, over on Substack. Don't forget, episodes drop every Tuesday and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being part of this community, listening to this podcast, and I hope that you enjoy the new content that's coming up in this new season. Welcome to this week's episode of Thriving Through Menopause. We are in World Menopause Month, and it is a perfect time to talk positivity because menopause, yeah, it's full of all this negative conversation and fear-mongering. And so when I, this week's guest was suggested to me by a shared mutual connection, I was like, wow, I have to have her on the show because it's a great way, 2nd of October, two days into this important month. And welcome to the show, Lil Glamben. Oh, what a delight to be here. Thank you so so much much for having me. It is so much my pleasure. I am going to tell my uh, listeners just a little bit about you because you are on a mission to transform beliefs, experiences, and options around menopause. And so women can connect with and fulfill our soul's deepest desires, dreams, and destinies during midlife and beyond. I love that so much. And you are the founder of Turn On Your Menopause Superpower Method. And we are going to talk a lot more about that. And of course, even better, like me, you are menopaused. You have been through the journey. And at 61, and I'm 63, so we're very similar in age. You know, you love you love it. You love this stage in life. So let's begin at the maybe the beginning. I mean. We talked before we came on the show about everybody's talking menopause, or at least it feels like that. But your perspective on this, you you talk about it in a particular way. Tell me more. To this week's episode of Thriving Through Menopause and another one for our Menopause Awareness Month. This time we're talking about our mental health and well-being. But maybe we're not depressed. And at the same time, we're not over happy at this time of life. And I think so many of my listeners, I'm sure you can relate, that you're not clinically depressed, but you don't feel quite right. You feel a bit, as my son, who's 26, says, I feel a bit meh or a bit blah. And so I'm delighted to have on the show today my guest, 
Tanith Carey. Welcome, Tanith. And you Thanks, are somebody who's really working in that interesting space between happiness and and depression or a, a sort of a state of real anxiety and sadness that we can see women have. Um, you are an author on many levels around psychology, parenting, and much more. You've been well known internationally for your work. You have certificate in therapeutic skills but you're now also training to become gestalt psychotherapist that's a little of your background but how did you come upon this uh, what you are calling anhedonia explain a little what it is and how it sort of arose in the work you do hmm. so I always say that I write about what I need to learn <laughs> And that's taken me on a very interesting journey through my books and my life. And I realized um, as I was going into perimenopause that even though I was in a good situation, my career was flourishing, you know, I had a thriving career as an author. I had a lovely husband, two healthy, happy children that I just wasn't really accessing the joy. Um, I was ticking the boxes, but the joy wasn't flowing through me. And I, I noticed this one day when I um, had a call from my literary agent with some very good news and I could hear myself on the phone going, oh, that's fantastic. That's great. Oh, brilliant. But when I put the phone down, I realized that I didn't actually have any good feelings flowing through me. And that made me really curious. And I thought, well, I can't be the only person who feels like this. Um, what, what, what is this? You know, but it also felt like a guilty, guilty secret because I had all these things. You know, I felt that if I raised it, that I was going to sound ungrateful or just a miserable cow or I should just learn to have more fun. But then over the years, I kind of kept watching this feeling. And, you know, I, I love Christmas. And even at Christmas, sometimes I'd feel, you know, the kids would be opening the stockings and I know there's nothing wrong, but I just couldn't access the joy. And I was wondering, what is it that's blocking me? So then one night, um, it was actually after COVID when, you know, we were all supposed to kind of out, come out of lockdown and everything was supposed to be amazing again. And again, I didn't feel particularly excited. So one night when my husband was asleep next to me, my, I sort of explored my guilty secret and I Googled, you know, why aren't I enjoying my life? And I probed and I probed. And then found, then I found this word, which is well known to clinicians. It's well known in psychiatry and among mental health um, professionals. And it was anhedonia. You know, and it isn't a new word. This was invented in, sorry, this was first framed in 1896 by a, a French um, sort of philosopher and it's been in the literature ever since here and there. I mean, it is a, a symptom of major depression, but there is so much research. And a lot of that research is pointing to the fact that you don't need to be depressed to be experiencing these feelings of blah and anhedonia and losing enjoyment of the things you used to love in life. And I just really wanted to explore that because I knew I wasn't the only person who could be feeling this and and the more I looked at it I realized that modern life makes life actually makes happiness increasingly difficult and I really wanted to write a book that looked at why this was happening and what we need to do to push back to start enjoying our lives again and also reaching our yeah, potential I mean everything I'm sure so many of us can relate to that because we feel guilty about not being maybe we're told we have to be happy we have to be grateful for everything and sometimes mm. think well mm. actually I'm not <laughs> you know? um, and you're right your life for it wasn't as hard as some people's and some people's menopause is dreadful and they have real depression linked to mm. trauma but there's this mm. sort of sense that you can't 
you don't feel like going woo all the time and and that's hard isn't it when social media is telling us that that should be the state so yeah absolutely yeah no we've been sort of we're told we're supposed to be happy all the time but then no one really tells us how what to do to make ourselves happy if you ask people what's your number one goal it will be to be happy but then if you say to them but how is happiness made in your brain they actually don't know so that's actually another question that I set out to answer in in, in the book. So I, I went to one of the world's top neuroscientists on joy. I mean, obviously, everyone's going, oh, my God. But I really simplified it down to what is a happy feeling? How does it form in your mesolimbic reward pathway? Because once we have to have this really elementary, basic understanding of that, we can do things to sort of, you know, turn the dials a bit, you know. Yeah, exa- exactly. And I think so, we... You may, you may or may not agree. I think we've started to equate being happy with stuff. <laughs> you know, that, you know, mm. if I have mm. X, Y, and Z, I should be happy. But that is that's not really quite true, yeah. is it? That's absolutely the case. So um, what we have actually is we have a dopamine overload. So we can get everything we want really, you know, technically in about two hours if we ask for it, we can get any sort of item we see on the internet, any food, any porn scene, any, you know, uh, any item, any experience we can see on the internet, any film, any song. But what happens is that that actually uh, gives us the dopamine. Dopamine is actually a molecule of seeking and anticipation. You are not supposed to overload your your, uh, brain with it. So what happens is when everything feels good, nothing feels good. So I think the point the point of this book is that we have the same brain as we had 100,000 years ago but we are we haven't really we're not really understanding how modern life and the modern world is actually kind of overloading it and that's why we are tending to feel numb and joyless and yeah I mean not not as happy as we could be and we're all confused because we're going okay well hold on we've got shelter food healthcare and all the rest of it um, but yet we're in a mental health freefall. So unless we kind of try to understand what exactly is going on in the bigger picture, that freefall is going to go and is yeah. going to continue. And that's why I really want to step yeah. back. And I think that's great because we are, it isn't just us individually. It is us collectively um, right across the world. And, and then we sort of see contrast, don't we, to people who live very simply and often they're much happier than we are, yet materially they're far worse off and I mean I spent as my listeners know a lot of my corporate career traveling to some of the poorest parts in the world really you know dire circumstances Mm -hmm. and I saw people who had a lot of joy there was a lot of laughter you know um, in those situations which I think sometimes is missing isn't it in our privileged world absolutely I totally agree I mean if you took our ancestors 100,000 years ago I mean, obviously, their lifespan would have been shorter, but they would have lived in collective groups of, you know, around 50 people. They would have had close family bonds. They would have been out in nature. They would have been seeking. They would have been working as a group collaboratively. Um, And now, uh, you know, society has moved on a very, like, too quickly almost for the human brain. So unless we kind of understand brain chemistry and kind of get our brains back on side... You know, this is only going to continue. Do you think this particularly affects women who are in this perimenopause, menopause phase because of some of the hormonal changes? I absolutely do think that, yeah. 
So what I was amazed, I mean, one of the things that I noticed in myself, I mean, I'd always been a pretty sort of capable, get up and do it kind of person. You know, I'd been a New York correspondent. I'd been an investigative journalist and all the rest of it. And then suddenly around the age of about 45, 46, 47, I realized that I just suddenly felt like the things that wouldn't bother me started to really make me anxious. You know, like things like I'd always been really confident driver. Now going on a motorway just made me feel a bit more nervous I just sort of felt overwhelmed. I woke woke up and I just feel like cortisol was like already, I mean, obviously cortisol wakes us up, but I just felt an, a cortisol overload. And so I was really interested as I wrote about anhedonia to realize that as estrogen drops, estrogen is an incredible, like the important buffer to cortisol so that your it stops it stops buffering your stress. So your stress becomes more and more, more exposed almost. And this really helped me understand a lot. And also estrogen is intricate, intricately linked to the production of dopamine. And the reduction of, uh, of, of estrogen means that, you know, it, it means there's less dopamine reward. I mean, it's not, it's not being as released in the same amounts as it was before. So then there's those two things, the, the, the kind of exposure of the cortisol and the kind of the change in the dopamine levels means that, of course, we're not going to feel as joyful as we did, unless we start to kind of get a handle on it. And, and, and you mentioned estrogen, but and we know its role in serotonin production, its role in the brain. Yeah. Where do you felt progesterone played a role? Because obviously that is a big factor too, particularly in the early perimenopausal phase. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, that's that's a calming it's sort of chemical, isn't it? And then we're losing that. So, of course, we're going to feel more stressed. So there's an awful lot going on in midlife women. And, of course, midlife women are also facing, you know, there are more women working than ever at any point. There are more women who are expected to do well. They're expected to do everything. It's likely that they have less family support. Uh, the thing that I think is really interesting as well is that just as you are going through these hormonal upheavals, it's very likely at that age that you're kind of getting kids who are going into sort of like adolescence and teenage years. So they're more challenging. They're through going through hormonal uh, dysregulation. And then, so the whole thing can be quite combustible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I love you brought up just how stressed and over busy we are. Um, and I was listening to professor Anise Mukherjee last week said that this is the generation of women that she sees uh, in her endocrinology clinics as the most stressed, unwell, overweight women ever. And that, that you know, we just got yeah. too much we're juggling. And of course, there's cortisol, you know, really rising up in the midst of such a big change. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other interesting thing that I sort of developed, sorry, I learned as I, as I did the investigation into the book was that, you know, cortisol... Uh, once it's spiked, it stays in your system, I think, for about an hour because that it's a survival survival mechanism. If 100,000 years ago you saw a saber-toothed tiger um, in the distance and you ran away from it, you needed to stay alert for another hour to make sure that it didn't yeah. it wasn't in the vicinity. You know, but like if you compare that to dopamine, dopamine once spiked, I think, sort of breaks down in the brain between in between two to five minutes. So that if we have cortisol all the time, cortisol dampens the uh, the, the, the the, the circulation of feel-good chemicals like serotonin and dopamine. So if we just never get a break and our cortisol is constantly raised and never gets the time to reset, then it's going to be very, very hard for us to feel the good effects of our of our ha yeah. happiness chemicals. Wow. 
So we are in a perfect storm, really, unless we start to take a little yes. bit more charge. So maybe. talk about how you personally discovered your way out of it. Absolutely. So I find with anhedonia and blah, just even knowing that there's a reason for it and it's a thing and there's a name for it and there are it can be addressed is incredibly liberating because otherwise it's the missing word in mental health it's the gray area that we are not talking about um it's just bringing it out into the light and then that means that once you name it then you feel a little bit more in control of it and you feel able to do something about it so just just even finding out that this was a thing was incredibly helpful to me and then I looked at the science about the various ways that you can address it. I mean, one of the things I should say that there are many reasons for anhedonia, and these can range from burnout, as we've mentioned, hormonal changes. They can be diet-related. They can also be related to um, very chaotic childhoods. Like if you felt as a child that um, happiness was about to be taken away from you, you can become distrustful of it in adulthood. Um, it can also be the result, or sorry, it can also be a symptom of long-term mm. term illness. So inflammatory illnesses or um, basically can also, the, the, there's evidence now to show that the inflammation can also affect the, the running of the brain's reward system. So like if we look at long COVID, for example, um, anhedonia is now listed as a symptom of long COVID. And it can also be linked to uh, conditions like obesity, diabetes, any autoimmune diseases. So, I mean, obviously, it very much depends what your cocktail of mixes are as into how you're going to address it. I mean, for me, uh, I realized my, my first step was to work out what my reasons were. My reasons were mm. burnout um, and hormones and quite a difficult childhood in which I had become quite distrustful of happiness. So. I just address those those yeah. at a time, really. I mean, one of the things I would say is that I also, what was incredibly helpful was to realize that you can turn up the dials on your brain chemicals with intention. So that I now, like I would introduce, I introduced changes into my lifestyle. So for example, knowing that dopamine is, as we've talked about the molecule of anticipation and also novelty. One of the things I do is every single week without fail, at the weekend I plan something for the week of a week ahead which is both new and I really look forward to so that means that I have a healthy healthy release of dopamine you know leading up to that event and I always have something to look forward to and that sounds really kind of almost simplistic but actually it is and it isn't do you know what I mean because it's made an incredible difference to my life the other thing I do is knowing that my phone is basically a cortisol generator and I need my cortisol to reset I make sure that I have an hour uh, phone free time a day so I literally put it out of the room and I get out into nature we go for a walk and then on my walks I I add value to that by I'm sort of more mindful I'm sorry that sounds a bit corny but like you know I go on an all walk where in fact I I deliberately look for details of nature that put my life in perspective all through my day I look for glimmers again glimmers sound a bit hallmark card but they're wonderful they are just kind of moments in the day of joy when you can that actually they're the opposite of triggers and they calm your nervous system so it's all sorts of lots of little things you know little co cocktail of things that you can bring together and over time you know these little things add up you know one percent one percent one percent and I think it's really important that we also talk not about mental health so much as mental fitness you know, in the same way that that person you you, you used to you, you used to know couldn't even run for a bus is now running marathons, you know, and they didn't go from that to that 
overnight. You can also do that with your mental fitness, you know, implement little things every day. And they and the more they make, they make a difference and you track them and you see the difference in the mood, the more motivated you are to do that. So I think it's just it's about awareness of this thing that you can be. And as a midlife woman, not accepting that you have that this is your status quo, that you're overloaded, you're worn down, you're tired, you know, you never quite get a break, all those feelings. But, you know, because it's you, you deserve a break and you are, you know, you are. You know, emotions are highly contagious. So once we're calmer and we're more emotionally regulated, that spreads to the people around us. So that also sort of makes life easier because if we're calmer with our teenagers, then there's probably less rows. If we're calmer with our partners, they're less kind of yeah. angsty. So it's about looking at the holistic whole I really love that deal, because really. sometimes, you know, I think we can feel that it's so overwhelming to feel better. And yet it really is those small moments as you said you know that you know looking up and seeing something small that's joyful and I love that you brought nature into that I mean I think many of my listeners will have heard me talk about Shinrin Ruko which is obviously forest bathing that's a bit more extreme but trees do emit positive chemicals and being close to nature is is healing and and grounding for for people and one of my favourite things, actually, is yeah. vitamin C, which is a bit corny, but, it, you know, we're very lucky, aren't we, in Britain, that no matter where we are, we're two hours well, from the exactly. beach. exactly. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's not true <laughs> if you're in the middle of Kansas. <laughs> if you know, oh, right, right, right. I'm not in Kansas, but, you know, if you were right there, you know, right. that would be different. But you might have that's lakes true, yeah. and water, and being near water can be there. What about sunlight in this? We've, we've heard a lot of people talk about the importance of, of sunlight. Did you find that that was an added element? Not that we get much here in the Northern Hemisphere, but... Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, there's there's very clear research that says there's a direct link between um, sunlight and uh, well-being. I mean, you only have to see the research on seasonal affective disorder, which was once dismissed as just silliness and is now completely taken completely seriously. So, yeah, you know, getting out in the morning, ideally, you know, is a great way or during the day, especially as we're heading into yeah. autumn and stuff like that. And then one of the things I love is um, one of the glimmers that I love is spotting kind of um, sunshine on cold days. It's oh, called a pretty nice name. <laughs> um, and that's wonderful. Once well, once you hear about that, then you notice it everywhere, you know, and I, I notice my cats bathing in the sun and. But also, you know, what I really valued about speaking to all the neuroscientists, and I think we do need to sort of understand the new science of joy because it's out there, but we just don't know it, is that joy is not just one thing. So according to the neuroscience and the way the the brain reward circuit works, it's three things. It's anticipation, which is looking forward to something, which is when the dopamine release is is kind of because, you know, it's it's a molecule of exploration. So it's stage one is anticipation. So it's looking forward to things, planning things. Um, stage two is being is appreciation so that's when the opioids in our brains are released so being there and appreciating it and sinking into it to take notice of it so that our cortisol lowers and our dopamine and our serotonin rises and then the third stage is remembering it which is basically committing it to, to memory or writing it down so that you want to do it again and this is a circular a circular exercise 
So once you know that joy is not just one thing, then you can start to get it on your side. You know, it's not such a nebulous thing that's just beyond no, our reach. When you say it like that, you can really think, can I plan something I'm looking forward to as you do in that there's something new or something we just love doing in our calendars? And then that appreciation, you know, that is, as you said, you let go of the phone. I mean, I think a lot of the time people show up and then they're busy taking a photo or looking in their phone and they're not actually mm-hmm. putting that aside and just going, wow, I'm here. You know, whatever that small moment Absolutely. is where you're doing a coffee with a friend or you're out walking, whatever it is, putting it away. And then memories. I mean, you know, memories are huge, aren't they, for us. And we can recall memories and if I'm correct, you can re-experience that emotion that you felt, whether that was good or bad, obviously, but if there are good ones, that that recall can mm-hmm. trigger dopamine release again. Yeah, that's exactly right. Imagined experiences are very, very powerful as well. So, well, so definitely so, lots yeah. of time. Yes, take some pictures, but do but do write things down and you know process how good it felt maybe and then spend time upon that. But also in the experience, I mean, the research shows that the more senses that you trigger, the more it's likely to be encoded in your brain. So uh, one of the tips that I include in the book is from uh, Professor Charles Spence. And he talks about, you know, if you're going to a museum, maybe take a sketchbook, maybe kind of, you know, draw it, really commit it to, to memory rather than just take a picture of it and then walk away. Same thing with going to the beach. You know, uh, he talks about the fact that it's, it's not just the the, the sort of the green gym effect is the blue gym effect that like you know you're at the beach you're breathing in the irons you're maybe having an ice cream you're smelling in the, the sea air yes it's the multi-sensory so, of course yeah. you know I know Charles Spence from my own research when I was once working as a researcher of cross-modal sensory perception which is very much his field you know but these interactive sensory and as you're right we don't just look at the sea we smell it we feel the yeah. wind um and and that multi-dimensional, that multi-layered experience is, is obviously really important for what we experience in the moment, but also what we then encode and take home with us. So that's that I love that. And I love that suddenly there's this sort of link to the past. We've had I've had this a few times. Like, oh yeah, I used to work with that person. <laughs> so that was that was funny. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. midlife women listening to this, you know, what kind of steps and advice Tanith do they do to move from this take to move from this state of being just I think overwhelmed feeling really blah and -hmm. certainly not wanting antidepressants Mm -hmm. as their only way out what can they do Mm. well I think they need to step back and to see just try and reconnect with what made made them happy before they became overwhelmed and it might seem, I think it seems when you're in midlife and you've got maybe elderly parents, kids, you know, partners, work, that you just don't have time for yourself. Um, I mean, one of the things that I uh, recommend is also making sure that you uh, spread the load, because I think what happens in midlife is that women take on more and more and more, often think that, oh, they're the only person they can do it. And their to-do list becomes very, very long. So what I recommend in the book is to do a no-do list in which you go through, you, you, you write down all the things that you do every week. And then you look about whether or not some of these tasks have become outdated. Could you delegate them? Do they sometimes not need to be done anymore? Could your teenagers now do them? Could your partner now do them? And then you carve out, you start carving out like baby steps an hour a day. Now, I know sometimes even that seems incredible, but the hour a day is what's been shown in research 
to be the start of what makes people feel happy that they can do what they like with. And that hour a day, you put away your phone and you ring fence that because I know everyone, every, I know like, you know, I, I've got two teenage daughters. You think, oh, I've got to be on tap at any time and all the rest of it. But really, I mean, you know, if you just say, I, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm just going to be having some time to myself. I mean, what a great example you're setting also to your teenagers who are often overwhelmed and don't ring fence their time. And just say, I'm going to have some time to myself and then start feeling that cortisol start to reduce. And start feeling back in control. Start twiddling those knobs on the cortisol, the dopamine, the serotonin, and feeling like, you know, it is not that you are back in charge. And that feeling blah, as I say, doesn't have to be your status quo. And that you are, you give yourself permission to do the things that you loved. Now, for example, this sounds a bit mad for people who know me, but I love I love yeah. embroidery. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it because it's not only something I did as a child. It's one of my sparks, which I talk about in the book, which is the thing that you probably as a child, you are naturally drawn to doing, even when adults didn't get involved. You did it anyway and you found it easier. And we all have them within ourselves. Now, if you can reconnect with your spark, whether or not it's sort of like, you know, um, sewing or painting or crafts or something like that, or maybe it's just reading a book, or maybe it's a reading a book about a subject that you're really passionately interested in. And then if you can enter, ideally, and it's not possible all the time, but into a state of oh, yeah. flow, which is a state where the cortisol comes down, the dopamine is, is flowing, you know, you're going to start feeling a lot better and you're going to start feeling more in control. And, you know, as I say, tell your partner if you have one, because partners often feel really blamed. They kind of think, oh, I'm not making her happy. What have I done? You know, it's me. And because it's this guilty secret, we don't talk about it. So I think we have to say, look, I'm not feeling as joyful as I did. I'd like to have more fun with you. I'd like to enjoy life more with you. This is what it, this is. Um, there are some reasons for it. I think these might be some of mine. Could we work together so that we have some more joyful experiences and then we work them into our schedule and we plan something once a week that we could both really, really love. love that too love that, that kind of so much sense. because then we're co-opting others to help us out of that state yeah 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 absolutely yeah and you can you can talk to your your kids about it too and just saying this is how I'm bringing more joy into my life because you know our kids are not thriving you know I did a piece recently for the independent in which you know uh, the mental health of UK kids has been declining uh, successively according to the research for the last 15 yeah. years in a row so we, it really helps if we can show them how to, that joy and happiness is more in control than we think. It doesn't just happen, but if we understand our brain and how it works, we can get it back I on really our love side. That because I'd also like to see not women being channeled down a default path of, it's an antidepressant, here, take that, a go away. And there are absolute mm -hmm. reasons, mental health-wise, why sometimes that is the right course of action. But also a lot of us, that becomes a default. The prescription levels are sky high. And as soon as you say, I don't feel quite okay, that that becomes, you know, here's the prescript, you know, in the seven minutes that you looked at, if you're lucky, and out the door. Whereas here are things that we can enact to maybe help us through being able to work with the anhedonia we feel to maybe not be on a, a pathway of just medication or no medication if it's not really what we totally need. And I'm sure that this is going to be wonderful, Tanith, what you've worked through here. Well, thank you. And, you know, all I can say is that I am a living embodiment of it. I've been on this journey 
my uh, husband amusingly um, reminded me of an editor who came to my wedding and said, oh, this is the first time I've seen Tanith smile. So I'm by <laughs> pretty intense. But now I, I feel lighter. I laugh more. Um, you know, I'm moved more easily by things. I feel unblocked. I just I just feel happiness is a possibility where I thought in modern life that wasn't possible. I think that's, that's fantastic. Massive How can people get in hold of the book that you've written and the advice from you? So I, the book is called um, Feeling Blah, Why Anhedonia Has Left You Joyless and How to Recapture Lies High. So that's in hardback at the moment. And I tend to post daily, I do a lot of explainer videos on my Instagram. So little snippets from the book sort of packaged up in sort of, you know, 60 seconds, little slots so that people can start to understand their brains better that's from the book. So that's nice and fun to follow. Um, and yeah, you can you can get um, get the book anywhere, really. Um, <laughs> I'm sure we're going to put a reference to the book and some links where people can get hold of it and obviously the link to the Instagram because I love that you're doing little explainers too because, you know, neuroscience is very in and popular right now, but I think we're still a little confused about what, what it is and so explaining this particular concept really mm -hmm. well, I think, and getting people to go, ah, I could do that is is awesome yeah exactly. Tanis, thank you for coming on thriving mm -hmm. through menopause in this month when we're trying i'm trying definitely to talk more positively about what's there for us to uh, connect and work with as women going through this time and not just sink into medicalization mayhem and misery um i really appreciate mm -hmm. it thank you well thanks for asking me clarissa i really enjoyed our chat Thanks for listening to the Thriving Through Menopause podcast with me, your host, Clarissa Christensen. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Tanith Carey about feelings of blah, where they come from and how you can overcome them. Join me next week for a rare solo episode where I'll be talking about nurturing and nourishing ourselves through the menopause transition from the lens of Chinese medicine and Yangsheng. I hope that you'll join me. And if you want to learn more about how you can take control of your menopause, then head to my website, clarissachristiansen.com and sign up for links and resources. That's all for this week's episode. See you next time.